What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Running through the streets, solving all the mysteries, crushes and aliens, lots of other crazy things. And we're in. Woohoo! Oh. <laughs> Got him. I don't like that at all. I'm Maggie. Oh my God, you like shook up my routine. <sighs> you okay? Yeah. First you made me do coffee math, and then you totally <laughs> shook up my... Okay, here's a question to the audience. <laughs> I ordered a grande, yeah. two-thirds decaf sure. latte. Right. Maggie challenged me to figure out how they did that. Right, because it's grande. So if I'm not mistaken, I think it's two shots of espresso yes. in the drink. Mm-hmm. So they had to make a decaf espresso and regular espresso and somehow create two-thirds. Two One-third. So this is going to require creating a common denominator, right? which is probably six. Sure. So we have... Um, six over six of the regular, and then we'd have to have, <laughs> and then one third of that. Okay, if you work at Starbucks, can you just two, email us and one... tell us if you do that? Because <laughs> yeah. I don't think they do. So you, think I it's think just that's half? probably half calf or all decaf. <laughs> I would rather it's all decaf than half calf. Or maybe they lose maybe it. they make so Kayla Kayla's guess is they do. <laughs> Two shots of decaf, Mm -hmm. one shot of calf, Mm -hmm. mix it together, and then from that mixture, pour out two shots. No, no, they don't mix them together. Oh. They use... (laughs) Okay, so it's more steps. It's more steps. (laughs) They use the regular caffeinated to make one-third of the total volume of the three shots. Mm -hmm. So however much volume that is, they take that out. Of the regular calf. Mm-hmm. And then they take whatever two-thirds of the total volume of the three of the two together out of the Okay, if you work at Starbucks, thirds. email us and just tell us what you do because now I just have to know. Yeah, because if I'm getting more caffeine than I <laughs> want, I'm going to have to order decaf because <laughs> I will panic. Yeah. All right. Well, hi. Welcome. Oh, hey. <laughs> we didn't see you there. <laughs> Welcome to Mystery Team Inc. Uh, I'm Kayla. I'm Maggie. Still. Oh my god. You really rattled me. I'm anyway, so sorry. It's fine. Do you have any top of show business? No. I have one top of show business. Okay, great. I'm ready. I have an email. It's from Jerry, who is one of our 
participatory listeners. We've interacted with Jerry before. And we love PLs. We love our PLs. We should make PL hats. Oh, that's a good idea. But no explanation. It just says says PL. PL. (laughs) We can put our logo on the back. Okay, just no, just nothing. Nothing. Okay, great. Okay, the subject of the email is, look how car we've from. Hi, mystery team. I'm Jerry. I wrote you guys about two years ago when I discovered the podcast. I was in college during the height of the pandemic, and I was pretty isolated as a result. And listening to your podcast brought me so much joy. Now I'm in grad school across the street from the Isabella Stewart Garden <gasps> Museum. No! Like, I can see into the windows from <gasps> my classrooms, and I listen to the podcast while I'm walking to and from classes and think about the heist constantly, obviously. Oh so as my favorite gumshoes like to say, look how car we've found. <gasps> XOXO, look how car you've from, Jerry. Jerry! First of all, congratulations. Congratulations. On graduating and being in grad school, and I... That's amazing. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. Like, grad school is really hard. Yeah. Which is why I personally chose not to do it, not because I'm not smart enough. But that's amazing. Congratulations. And yeah, like blow it a kiss from us. (laughs) My baby girl. A smooch, if you will. (laughs) Give my girl a smooch. Heist smooches. (laughs) I love her. Congratulations. I love it. Look how car we've from. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Give us also any... two years ago. I know. That's wild. Our 100th episode is coming up. And mm. by the time it airs, our five year anniversary will be passed. But we're, I think we're going to celebrate our five year anniversary on our 100th episode. So didn't we time it out so that they would be the same? Yeah. You and I had this discussion Did already. Did we ruin it? Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> it's because we got COVID and then we pushed oh, our right. schedule. Okay. You ready? Mm hmm. Um, Maggie asked me for a genre. Um, my only answer is outside <laughs> pipe dream <laughs> that is what you said it will become clear why yeah. i said that on may 28th 1953 after two and a half months of effort a high camp was dug tenuously into the southeast ridge of mount everest at twenty-seven thousand nine hundred feet the next morning Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay set out for the top. At 10 a.m., they arrived at, quote, the most formidable-looking problem on the ridge, a rock step some 40 feet high. The rock itself was smooth and almost holdless. It might have been an interesting Sunday afternoon problem to a group of expert climbers in the Lake District, but here, it was a barrier beyond our feeble strength to overcome. This would come to be known as the Hillary Step. Shortly before noon on May 29, 1953, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became the first men to stand atop Mount Everest. Or were they? (gasps) This is a contested claim, because some people think that the actual first summit of Everest happened 29 years before by George Mallory and Sandy Irvin. This is why I called it a pipe dream, because somewhere inside me. <laughs> you want someone to contest whether or not you actually did the thing? No. <laughs> it's worse. My fatal flaw is that I believe if I had enough funding mm-hmm. and training, I could climb Mount Everest. Yeah. I can barely run for three minutes, but I do believe I could. Yeah, I think with the right amount of training and funding, you could do it. I do think that. I've thought that since I was 12 years old. 
when I read Into Thin Air for the first of many times. Mm-hmm. And we had to do a book report where we like packed a lunch for the character in the book. And I was like, I'm going to pack a fucking Everest. <laughs> and my mom was like, if this is who you want to be, it's who you can be. And that's how we ended up here today. <laughs> so my mystery is, did George Mallory and Sandy Irvin summit Mount Everest in 1924? That's amazing. Yeah. There's no answer. Surprise. Surprise. We don't know. <laughs> I also, I meant to say this earlier, but since... I was dragged kicking and screaming through the last episode you did. I, Mm. like, made a commitment today to yes and everything that you say. So, great. Just wanted to put that out there, that that's what I've signed (laughs) myself up for. (laughs) We have a new attitude coming into today. The good news is... Knock, (laughs) knock. Who's there? My new attitude. (laughs) My new attitude. Who? (laughs) Just me and my attitude. (laughs) Yes and. (laughs) Yes and. Okay, so a little bit about Everest. Mount Everest lies in the Mahalangor mountain range. Its summit reaches already. We No one can agree what its summit is. Okay. It's like between 29,029 feet and 29,035 feet. It doesn't sound like a lot, but for like mountain nerds, being right about that is important. Mm-hmm. Um, It lies on the border of Nepal to the south and Tibet to the north. And apparently it grows a quarter of an inch a year. Same. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm still growing. (laughs) My feet are growing. Yeah, that does happen. Does it? Mm -hmm. I'm disappointed. Yeah. None of my shoes fit anymore. That's so sad. I know. And they're so big to begin with. Like, I'm a 12 now. (laughs) Anyway. So. Sits at 29,000 something feet. I wrote. (laughs) Something feet. I wrote. 12 feet. (laughs) 29,012 feet. If you have big feet, they are beautiful. You know who else has big feet? Bigfoot. And we love that guy. Me too love that guy. Okay. (laughs) I wrote. (laughs) For context, we in Los Angeles sit at 305 feet above sea level. So just to give you some perspective. And we love it here. <laughs> uh-huh. um, for most of the year, the top of Mount Everest is battered by the jet stream with high winds and very low temperatures, which makes it almost impossible to reach. There's a short window in spring before the monsoon hits in June called the summit window, which is when climbers make their attempt. Um, According to explorerspassage.com, 800 people attempt Everest every year, and there have been about 4,000 summits in history. Two people are tied for the most summits, um, Appa Sherpa and Purbatashi Sherpa, who have both climbed Everest 21 times. The Sherpa are an ethnic group that live in the high altitude areas around Everest. Um, We'll talk about them a little bit later, but they are like more acclimatized because they have been living up there for 10,000 years Mm -hmm. and they've done some studies about like their hemoglobin levels and stuff. And they like have We'll get to it later, but it's really interesting. But they are hired as porters on 
guided Everest trips. But they're a lot of the time taken advantage of. They are underpaid. They're like mistreated by white people. I was thinking about that, like, or I have thought about this before, because white people always come, like, try to summit Everest. But I'm like, those guides must do it all the time. Yeah, they're better at it. Right. They And they carry everything up. Right. Like, they're, it's unbelievable what they do. Um, and I think a lot of the guides, I read a lot of stories about, like, climbers who climb with the same Sherpa mm-hmm. every time. And they are, like, climbing partners. And they, like... A, most of the Sherpa guides, from my understanding, love climbing. Mm-hmm. And they do it because they love it. Right. But then why people are mean to them and, like, sure. don't treat them with respect or, like, take care of them on the mountain. Yeah. Um, they also make up, like, a significant number of fatalities from, like, falls and stuff. Mm-hmm. So the Tibetan name for Everest is Chamalongma, which means Mother Goddess of the World. And the Nepali name is Sagarmartha, which means goddess of the sky, but I've heard other variations on that translation. The mountain was eventually named after George Everest, who was the surveyor general of India at the time that it was measured by... (laughs) I was just looking this up before we started because I couldn't remember the name of the project. So I wrote the Triangle People, Mm -hmm. but it's actually the Great Trigonometrical Survey, which is when the imperialists Mm -hmm. measured the Himalayas, so that they could know what mm-hmm. land they owned, Worst feeling, quote yeah. unquote owned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it costs around seventy five thousand dollars for a guided trip. Um, it takes Wait, like say that number again seventy five thousand okay. dollars. Um, the countries charge a fee per to the guiding company, and then you personally pay the guiding company to provide food porters, shelter, guidance. They have all their fixed ropes and everything. Um, It takes like a few weeks to get to base camp from Mm -hmm. wherever you depart uh, Nepal or Tibet. And then it takes 40 days about to climb the actual mountain. There are 18 routes to the top. The two main ones are the approach from Tibet up what's called the North Coal or the Northeast Ridge. And then there's the approach from Nepal up the South Coal or the Southeast Ridge. Um, These are two very different environments before you get to the mountain. The trek into base camp on the south side is like a beautiful like fairy jungle (laughs) because they get the rains from Mm -hmm. the south. But then (laughs) the the trek from... It, the from Tibet is like a cold desert, mm-hmm. and it's I guess sucks like, like a vertical desert. No, it's flat. Oh, it to is. get to base camp. Oh. Um, but, but isn't base camp already up the mountain quite a ways? Yeah, but you go in and then up. Um, it. So it's like a hike, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But from the Tibetan side, you can take a jeep in. Like they'll just drive you in. <laughs> But from the south side, you go through, like, a fairy wonderland, and there's, like, streams that, like, freeze overnight Mm -hmm. and then, like, wake up in the morning. (laughs) I want to do it so bad. So for all of the routes up Everest, you arrive at base camp around March, and then you acclimatize until around May when the weather clears up, and then you begin moving up to the higher camps. 
Um, all Everest climbs begin with what's called a puja, which is a Sherpa ceremony in which you make offerings to the mountain and bring your gear to be blessed to ensure safe passage up the mountain. Um, and there were a lot of the climbers who write about it are like, uh, like a lot of people who just sign up for the treks, like don't respect the ceremony at all. But then uh, most of the climbers are like, take it really seriously. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, um, so the south route is the route that was taken by Hillary and Tenzing. And I could tell you the whole route, but we don't have time. But it does feature what is called the Kumbu Icefall, which is like what I think of when I think of climbing Everest, which is like all the blue um, like spikes of ice and all mm -hmm. the deep crevasses with like the rickety ladders mm -hmm. on them, yeah. which is the most dangerous part of that route. I, yeah. would, I don't know if I would want to do that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> For when I climb Everest. Yeah. The north route is where our story today takes place. It takes you from what is called the Rongbuk Glacier up to the North Coal at 23,000 feet. Where Santa lives. No, that's higher. No, at the North Coal. No, he's higher than that. <laughs> he's above the North Coal. I see what you're saying, but he would never live that low altitude. <laughs> Come on, let's be serious. We're talking about a science. But what's the altitude of the North Pole? A million. A million? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Wow. Um, Some of us weren't paying attention in school. Yeah. About Santa altitude. Mm -hmm. What's interesting South is altitude. that. <laughs> it's a whole field of study. Saltitude. Don't get me under that saltitude. I'm yes ending you. I like it. It's a little <laughs> disconcerting. <laughs> How supportive I am? Yeah. Is that throwing like, you off? Can you please put me back in my place? <laughs> Somebody asked to. So the North Pole is at 23,000 feet. 26,000 feet or 8,000 meters is where the death zone starts. So from the North Pole on, I wrote, shit is dicey. The death zone is the point at which your cells start dying faster than your body can repair them. Uh, yeah. You can't sleep. You can't eat. Your digestive system shuts down. Your brain gets super foggy. Your blood turns to sludge. And your body is using oxygen faster than it can replenish it. In extreme cases, you can develop hypoxia, which is when the body's tissues are oxygen-deprived. Like, the tissues are oxygen-deprived, which can lead to necrosis. Um, you can also get high-altitude pulmonary edema, which is called HAPE, um, and high-altitude cerebral edema, HACE. Um, also, when you're climbing at this altitude, you have to take, like, a 10-minute break every three steps. And when you're, like, the interviews of people climbing Everest, like the people who make documentaries, they talk like this, even when they're, like, sitting in a chair. <clears throat> Don't go. I already signed up. Okay. I'm using our company funds. <laughs> <laughs> what funds? Am I right? <laughs> well, now we don't have any. Uh -uh. You know how expensive it is to climb Everest? $75,000. Yeah. Anyway, so that's not what I'm using our money for. <laughs> I'm using it to climb K2. Oh, okay. Um, so after the Northeast Ridge on this route, you also, I'm really sorry that I have no consistency in how I say route and route. No one ever told me what's right. Mm hmm. If you work at Starbucks, can you let us know yeah. <laughs> what pronunciation of that word is correct? 
So after the Northeast Ridge, there are three rock steps that are key to this story and to that climb. Every time you say rock step, I'm just imagining like a musical theater or like a dance oh, rock no. step. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just like... Not like a step of rock. It's, it's like a rock step. People in their yeah. little big puffy things. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. They do go up in a line. It's like people in their saddle <laughs> shoes. Like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I would pay money to see an Everest. If you work at Starbucks. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's three. Uh, the first one is fine. The second step is the... <laughs> Great. The second step is the problem. It's 90 feet. It's nearly vertical. And it completely interrupts the North Ridge. So you can't... This set of rock steps is giving Brady, but like it's giving Jan Brady. <laughs> like the first one is fine. The second one is completely vertical. A problem. It's a problem. <laughs> like sure, Jan. Yeah. Um, so it's it breaks up the ridge at 28,230 feet and there's you can't go around it can't, can't go, go under, under it. it gotta go up it yeah um so that's like the main big guy mm-hmm. of this ridge and then the third step step sits at 28,500 feet um and it leads you to the summit pyramid which then you go like around a snow slope and then a outcropping and then up three more small steps and then you get to the top. Wow. And Everest is like that was um, so easy. I know. It took like seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a big pyramid, basically. And then at the top it's like uh, mm-hmm. pyramid. Yeah. So much of what we know about the north side of Everest can be attributed to the British expeditions in the 1920s. The most famous participant of those expeditions is George Mallory. George Mallory was born June 18, 1886, in Cheshire, England. His father was a parson, and there is, like, a very famous anecdote where George, like, climbed the church. His sister, A.V., said of him, He climbed everything that it was at all possible to climb. Impossible was a word that acted as a challenge for him. And I was like, (laughs) don't know what that's like. (laughs) Literally, no idea. (laughs) He attended Winchester College, which means high school, where that's what it is in the British. Sure. Where he, I don't like this yes and. (laughs) I don't like it. I feel really unsettled. Okay, I'll start. I'll start. Will you please challenge me? Yeah, I'll challenge you. No, don't. Um, Okay, so he (laughs) went. Route, route, I don't know. (laughs) What do you want from me? I haven't figured it out yet. This is a big problem in all my relationships. (laughs) (laughs) So he went to high school where he excelled in sports and also science and also math and also music. The summer before his last year there, his tutor, Graham Irving, not to be confused with Irvin, who was a member of the Alpine Club, which is like... (laughs) So there was this whole thing where people, like, reached both of the poles on these, like, very deadly, daring expeditions. And then everyone was like, what now? Everest is the third pole. So that's when, like, climbing took off. And they this club called the Alpine Club was started by white men with money. And Graham Irving was a part of the Alpine Club. And he took... George and this boy, Harry, who won't come back in the story, (laughs) 
climbing in the Alps, and Mallory was, like, incredible at it. Irving said, Mallory had a kind of addiction to risk that skeptical observers considered to be simply reckless, and he also called him congenitally absent-minded. <laughs> and I was like, I am tagged in this photo, and I don't yeah. like it. Um, so then George Mallory went to Cambridge, where he thrived. Um, a lot of what people have to say about Mallory is that he was A, super hot, and I'm serious, and B, so charismatic and charming that you couldn't help but fall in love with him. Like, everybody he met was in love with him. So what you're telling me is Mallory walked so that granola slacklining climber uh, quad guys could run? This is my exact type. <laughs> I have literally had my life ruined yeah. by this person. Yeah. To a T. It's terrible. Times, probably. Well, the same person didn't. Sure. We don't have to talk about it. But <laughs> it's literally like on paper, mm -hmm. they're the same. Mm -hmm. So he's hot. And you know what? For the first time, I don't necessarily agree. I didn't get a crush on him. Oh. That's because your crushes are m more, like, personality-based. Yeah, and he is a little, like, I don't even know how to describe it. Can I guess? Can yeah. I just throw words at it? Flowery. Entitled. Oh, flowery. Entitled. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what it is. He is also a beautiful writer, mm -hmm. but... The way he writes, I just want to be like, shut up, you know? <laughs> like, I recognize he's just not beautiful. down to earth enough for you. He's not, like, grounded. Literally, he's at 29,000 feet. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Kayla Vandevon. <laughs> so, yes, there's something about him where I'm like, I get it, but it's just not for me. Yeah. Um, He did theater. He did music. He was a rower. He was, like, a champion rower. He was a beautiful writer, and he continued climbing, and he was, like, the best one at climbing. Now, <laughs> a lot of historians have a lot to say about what was going on at Cambridge at this time. There are, like, two extremes that I've identified. One of them is properly demonstrated by this direct quote. It was a hotbed of homosexual intrigue. And then the other end is, like, stuffy old white men being like, uh, no, they were all just, like, friends. It was, like, Plato's <laughs> Symposium. Like, it wasn't, like, a sexual love. It was, like, a platonic, like, friend sure, love. Sure, There's no part of me that believes that that is true. Partly because there's, like, quotes in every book mm -hmm. of men saying things about Mallory that no man has ever said about me. Mm -hmm. Partly because we're different. Mm -hmm. He has, like, a lot of worth as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> so you have um, a podcast and I have a podcast <laughs> um, there's also this debate quote unquote debate where the same historians who were like oh no homo at Cambridge are like he there's no proof that he was bisexual like there's no proof but sure. the proof is other historians being like uh, no he yeah. wasn't not my masculine hero yeah. <laughs> but then it was one, also the 20s yeah. Right? Which is, or it like not teens, even. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, there was like people probably had a vested interest in like masking their sexuality because. Kind of though. Like, here's the thing. I don't think that anyone there was like, and I don't know a lot about gay history in the teens in England, but it seemed like, especially the people who were writing about Mallory, like weren't hiding it at all and they weren't being shy about it. Um, I don't really know, but it did seem to me that it wasn't just Plato's Symposium, which I also 
think might have been a hotbed, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah. So the historians are like, there's no way he was bisexual. There's no proof. And then the proof is another historian being like, no way, not my masculine hero. But then one of his classmates was like, no, he was. I saw it happen. He had an affair with my stepdad. Sure. Um, And that dad said this. That's this a is, power move, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> this is a direct quote. He said, Mon Dieu, George Mallory, when that's been written, what more needs to be said? My hand trembles. <laughs> my heart palpitates. My whole being swoons away at the words. <laughs> oh, heavens, heavens. I have found, of course, that he has been absurdly maligned. He's six foot high with the body of an athlete by Praxiteles and a face, oh, incredible, the mystery of Botticelli, the refinement and delicacy of a Chinese print, the youth of an imaginable English boy. So do with that what you will. Okay. (laughs) And that's one of many quotes of people being like, I would literally die for this man. Yeah. So Mallory climbed all throughout university, during which time he met Jeffrey Winthrop Young, who was the hailed as the best climber of the day. And Jeffrey had a group of climbers that he took climbing in Wales. And so he like took Mallory into the fold of that group. He also was openly gay and in love with Mallory. He said Mallory was so original in his climbing that it never occurred to us to compare him with others or to judge his performance by ordinary mountaineering standards. Um, There's also people who said he, like, climbed, like, scrambled up mountains like it was nothing. Um, So in 1910, Mallory took a job teaching at a school called Charter House and continued climbing on his breaks. In 1914, he met and fell madly in love with one Ruth Turner. They were married four months later. She was described as a person of the wisest simplicity and a transcendent practicalness. Her stability seemed to give Mallory an anchor in life. Which is really nice. nice. He did teach her to climb. And there's one story where he like tied her into a rope and shoved her off a cliff because she was scared. And then they met at the bottom and she was like, my God, that was so fun. (laughs) Somebody shoved me off a cliff. Um, So Rope or no rope? I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise me. (laughs) Dealer's choice. Uh, In 1916, Mallory enlisted in World War I. Um, At the time, he and Ruth had two infant daughters, Claire and Burdage. And then they had a son. new influencer (laughs) baby name list. Burdage. Birdie for short. Oh. I just sold it. Now I want it. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, They had a son, John, in 1920. And then through a series of injuries, he ended up being, like, sent back and forth from the front lines Mm -hmm. and then missed, like, the year and a half of the worst fighting of the Mm -hmm. war. In the summer of 1919, Mallory returned to the Alps for the first time in seven years and showed what was called an uncanny knack for route finding. (laughs) I'm losing confidence in it. (laughs) And he was at this time considered to be the best climber in Britain. And in 1921, he was invited to join the first British reconnaissance expedition to Mount Everest. Hmm. So the mission was led by Charles Howard Burry, 
And the climbing leader of the mission was Harold Rayburn, who was a 56-year-old Scottish climber with a lot of experience with guided climbing. Mallory didn't like either of them. Mm -hmm. He said that Howard Burry was well-informed and opinionated and doesn't like anyone else to know things he doesn't know. (laughs) And Rayburn was dreadfully dictatorial about matters of fact and often wrong. They brought along Scottish doctor and mountaineer Alexander Kellis, who at the time of the 1921 mission had spent more time above 7,000 meters than any Westerner. And he was doing research on the effects of high altitude on the body. And it was during these trips that he met the Sherpa people. And he realized that because they lived in such a high altitude, they were better suited to climbing than Westerners. And he began to employ them as borders and support for the climbs. And what he found was they not only had more hemoglobin in their blood, they also had more capillaries to, like, bring oxygenated yeah. blood. So, And someone was like, this is proof that, like, evolution is still happening because they only, like— are native to the region back to 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. I think it's unreal. The team was rounded out by team doctor Sandy Wollaston, George Mallory, and Guy Bullock, who was Mallory's friend from high school, who he just, like, brought along, who didn't really have any climbing experience. Sure. The trips, Everybody gets one plus everyone, one. <laughs> it's like, we all it's have like a bringing a divorce lawyer as your plus one to a wedding. <laughs> So the trip started out really rough. They set out from Darjeeling on the 18th and the 19th in two groups, 18th and 19th of May. On June 5th, Kellis died of dysentery. Oh. He didn't even make it to base camp. Ouch. And then a few days later, Rayburn had to turn back because he had dysentery. Ouch. And then on June 13th, Mallory got his first glimpse of Everest. And it's all downhill from there, baby. Just kidding. It's It'll Literally. be okay for a little. It's all uphill. <laughs> So by June 25th, they had reached the terminus of what's called the Wrongbook Glacier, which is a stream of ice that drains the north side of Everest, which Mallory described as not a road, but an obstacle. Mm-hmm. He knew that the key of getting to the summit was getting up to the Northeast Ridge. And in order to get the Northeast Ridge, they needed to reach, there's like a 20, a foot, a saddle of snow up there at 23,000 feet. Um, that is the North Coal. And in order to get there, you have to go, like, up the glacier. And they could not figure out how to get up the glacier. It's they, He and Bullock walked around for, like, weeks. Walked. They hiked and climbed for weeks. Mallory brought a camera along, and they were, like, mapping and documenting the mountain. Um, eventually, after a lot of false starts, like, climbing in the entirely wrong direction, they figured— <laughs> They were digging. Yeah. They figured out that they found what's now called the East Wrongbook Glacier, which is like a little ice stream that's like branches off from the main glacier. And it's two and a half miles above the terminus. And people now use that on all their expeditions. Like that's just how you get up the North Pole. It was also on this trip that Mallory pulled a Kayla and he like had been loading the camera backwards the whole time. (gasps) So all the pictures that he had to like go back and retake all the pictures. Um, So they were then joined by a climber named H.T. Morrishead. And on September 24th, Mallory Bullock and Edward Wheeler and the expedition's chief surveyor crossed the East Rongbuk Glacier and gained the North Coal. And at that point, the weather got bad and they ended the expedition. But they had done what had never been done before. They had established a route to the North Pole, and they have mapped thousands of miles of territory. Good for you. (laughs) 
And as soon as they got back, there was talk of a second expedition. Um, And by late winter, they had assembled the team. Uh, The leader was General Charles Bruce, who had been in the army in India. Colonel Edward Strutt, who was also a veteran, was a climbing leader. There were three doctors, Tom Longstaff, who held the record for highest summit at that point at 23,360 feet on True School. Um, Arthur Wakefield and Howard Somerville, who will be important. And then the rest of the climbing team was George Mallory, Teddy Norton, Jeffrey Bruce, and George Finch. The dream and team. They're truly. Mm-hmm. These are our dudes. Minus one. Um, and the big debate for this trip was whether or not to use bottled oxygen to climb. Um, Finch said, yeah, we have to. And Mallory was like, um, no, that's not real climbing. So the second expedition took place in 22. This time they reached the North Coal by May 13th, thanks to Mallory's extensive route finding. And they set up Camp 4, um, and it was fully stocked six days later. So the you have base camp, Camp 1, and Camp 2 and Camp 3 are, like, still acclimatizing, and you're not up onto, like, the route route yet. Mm-hmm. And then Camp 4 is at on the North Coal. So <clears throat> they had two to three weeks of good weather before the monsoon. And the plan was to attempt two summit pushes. The first would be Mallory, Somerville, and Morrishead, and then Norton. And they would make the first attempt with no oxygen. And then if they were unsuccessful, Finch and Jeffrey Bruce would then follow and make an attempt using oxygen. So the first group set out on May 20th from the North Coal at 7.30 a.m. I love that compromise, which is like, we have to use oxygen. Like, no, we don't. That's not real climbing. Okay, you do it <laughs> without oxygen. And when you can't, we will try it with yeah. oxygen. That's Perfect. precisely it. This is how all teams should run. Yeah. You do it wrong. <laughs> and then I'll come in and do it right. <laughs> so they ascended to 26,980 feet, which set a new record for the highest anyone had ever been on Earth. Um that day, Morrishead had stayed behind at Camp 5 because he was, like, really frostbitten and very tired. So <laughs> Okay, c- come up with a real reason. <laughs> what are your toes cold? <laughs> so they reached their highest point. They were like, ah, yay, but we have to turn around. And they turned around, and they went back to Camp 5 to get Morrishead, and they roped together to descend. Mallory was in the lead, Somerville was at the back, and then Moore's head was third on the rope, and then some uh, Norton. And at first, when they told the story, nobody wanted to name names. But what happened was Moore's head slipped. Mm. He pulled Norton mm. and Somerville loose. Oh. And they plunged over Mallory toward what was a 35,000-foot void over the glacier. <gasps> and Mallory, in a feat of mountaineering not seen— drove the the pick of his axe into the snow and then threw the rope over it and belayed them. And he wrote in his expedition book about this expedition, 99 cases of 100, either the belay will give or the rope will break. Neither of these things happened. The three men's falls were halted and not even like they like accordion stopped. So it didn't really even hurt them. And then That's someone crazy. wrote, it's crazy. I don't remember which book this was in. But someone said, almost never in mountaineering history has one man held three falling companions with nothing more solid than an ice axe belay. Yeah, that's insane. Insane. So 
By the time they made it down to Camp 3 the next day, Morris heads fingers were swollen and black with frostbite. They were all severely dehydrated. And then two days later on May 24th, George Finch set out with his oxygen and Jeffrey Bruce because nobody else could come with him. So he's like, I guess I'll take you. They passed Mallory at Norton's high point and then added 500 feet to the record. Hmm. And they were like, hmm, I guess it does make a difference. (laughs) So at this point, the monsoon still hadn't arrived. And Mallory was getting antsy, and he was like, we can try one more time. And they were like, ooh, should we? I don't think we should. Um, But Somerville and someone named Colin Crawford, who we hadn't heard about until now, (laughs) and Mallory set out on June 7th to make one more. Was that HR? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, I think he was a surveyor, actually. Okay. They set out on June 7th with. I knew he was a pencil pusher. He was a nerd. It's like all the expeditions are half nerds, half yeah. nerds. Yeah. Um, two-thirds decaf, one-half <laughs> calf. If you work at Starbucks. <laughs> so they made a last-ditch summit attempt with oxygen and 14 porters. The slope was blanketed in new sl- snow, which is like maybe not a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they were climbing, they heard what was described as an ominous sound, sharp, sharp, arresting, violent, and yet somehow soft like an explosion of untamped gunpowder. The avalanche came from 100 feet above. It swept the three Englishmen and the porters nearest the top off their feet. They came to rest a short distance down and dug themselves out, but the porters lower on the slope were caught and hurled over a 40-foot ice cliff. Um, Six of them were found dead, and a seventh was never found. And they turned around and went back to Camp 3. And the blame for the accident was placed on Mallory, and he, like, agreed. Um, He shouldn't have pushed for such a late attempt, and he should have known that the snow conditions were, quote, dubious. Mm -hmm. And that marked the end of the 1923 expedition. So after they returned home, Mallory embarked on a three-month lecture tour of America talking about Everest. He hated America. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was on this tour that, when asked by a prying journalist why people wanted to climb Everest, Mallory shot back, because it is there. Those are the words that people remember him by. He was just being a dick, Mm -hmm. which I support. Mm -hmm. But he actually said this, too, which I love. He said, we go to Mount Everest because, in a word, we can't help it. Or, to state the matter rather differently, because we are mountaineers. To refuse the adventure is to run the risk of drying up like a pea in its shell. Hmm. That's why. Mm -hmm. The next expedition was planned for spring of 1924. Mallory confided in his friend, this is going to be more like war than mountaineering. I don't expect to come back. And that's where we're going to take a break. (gasps) No! But I need to know. Get out your crampons. (laughs) What? We're going to the top. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm so excited. This is the crampons. Oh, okay, great. We'll be right back after these messages. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back after those messages. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Thank you. Are you even planning that? No. Oh, okay. Um, okay, so 1924 expedition. Mallory didn't expect to come back. He also um, expressed some distaste with Everest after that avalanche. Like, he was like, I shouldn't go back because not distaste. <laughs> like, it was like a poor choice. Yeah. He just was like, I. On her part. On her part. <laughs> mother of whom? <laughs> he, like, didn't want to go back, but he obviously did want to go back, but him. he felt really bad. So he kind of had to be talked into this one. Um, the team was, again, led by General Charles Bruce. The team brought back Howard Somerville. He brought his plus, plus one, one mm-hmm. Bentley Beetham. Noel O'Dell, climber, brought his protege, Sandy Irvin. We had Jeffrey Bruce back, who was now a seasoned climber. Um, then they brought a climber named John Devere Hazard. And they brought a photographer slash cinematographer, John Knoll, and George Mallory. That so was they, smart to bring someone who knows how to load a camera. I know. <laughs> After that last time. There's really, really cool footage of, like, the first footage shot of people on average. And because it's so old, like, there's frames missing. And they just look like they're like, beep, 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 beep. They don't make it look hard. I want to watch. They look like they're walking. Yeah. Which is why I think I can do it. <laughs> Um, so they set off from Darjeeling on March 24th. Almost immediately, General Bruce got malaria and mm-hmm. had to turn around on April 13th, and he died on his way back to town. Oh, God. So Norton was promoted to leader, and Mallory was re- uh, Mallory was promoted to climbing leader. But he also was congenitally absent-minded. So like, <laughs> a lot of people were like, don't do that. Mm-hmm. He forgets his shoes, mm-hmm. which is true. Yeah. Um, so the plan was to send two teams again, one with oxygen and one without. Um, but this time the group without oxygen would depart from a, like a to-be-established Camp 7 at 27,300 feet. And then the group with gas would depart from a Camp 6 800 lower, 800 feet lower than Camp 7, and then presumably they would meet at the summit mm-hmm. on the same day at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Mallory set May 17th as the summit day. However, the trip was chaos mm-hmm. from the moment they arrived. Mm-hmm. There was the malaria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when they got to Rongbuk Monastery, which is at like right where the glacier begins, on April 29th, they learned that the head llama was sick and couldn't perform the puja for them. And they were greeted by a new mural that had been painted at the monastery memorializing the 1922 accident, which Bentley Beetham described as the party being pitchforked down the mountainside by hoofed devils and sent spinning in the cold hell. Got him. <laughs> So they didn't get the blessing, and there was, like, a new unflattering portrait of them. Mm -hmm. The weather was terrible. It was incredibly difficult for them to set up the first three camps. Um, The weather eventually got so bad that Norton ordered everyone back to base camp. One of the porters broke his leg on the way down. One had a blood clot in his brain. One had frostbitten feet up to the ankle. The latter two died shortly after and were buried at base camp. 
All the climbers were sick. Mallory had intestinal problems so bad that he thought it was appendicitis. Beatham's sciatica was acting up, so he didn't end up climbing. And Norton was like, we're going back to the monastery. And they went back <laughs> to, like, get the blessing. And the Lama said, your turning back brings pleasure to the demons. They have forced you back, and they will force you back again. Whoa. And then they were like, all right, back to base camp. <laughs> so... In 1922, they had reached the North Pole by May 13th. This year, they left base camp on May 17th. And Mallory changed his summit date to May 28th. So they finally gained the North Pole. But again, there were disasters every step of the way. They couldn't stay up at any of the higher camps without shit going down. Like, they would establish a camp and then someone would get lost and they'd have to go rescue them and then everyone would be too tired and go back down and then they go to the camp again and someone's frostbitten tired like mm-hmm. constantly Th- that's why this took me so long to write because the details are really cool and I had to get rid of all of it because mm-hmm. I'm the only one who wants to hear it <laughs> I think I texted you that. yeah um so on May 25th they retreated back to camp one defeated um they had what they called a council of war to discuss what they should do At that point, Camp 4 had been established, but it only had tents and sleeping bags. There was no food or oxygen. They didn't want to send the porters up with oxygen because they were exhausted. So Norton was like, let's just go without oxygen. So all that was for nothing. They went up. They agreed to go up in two groups of two with porters, but without carrying oxygen. So on June 1st, with much difficulty, Mallory, Bruce, and eight porters managed to establish Camp 5 and then retreated back to Camp 4 the next morning on June 2nd instead of pushing on to establish Camp 6, which is what they were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And they abandoned that summit attempt. That morning, Norton and Somerville left the North Pole with six porters expecting Camp 5 and 6 to, like, have shit for them. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. But... Two days later, they reached the summit ridge. Somerville tapped out because he had an alarming cough. Norton pushed on despite experiencing the first signs of snow blindness. In the end, he reached 28,126 feet, which is 900 feet below the summit before turning around. I believe that was a new record. Yes, the team descended having set a new record for highest ascent Mm -hmm. in human history. Probably, I wrote, because we don't know what happened before the white people decided Mm -hmm. they own the world. Mm -hmm. On the way down, Norton, in a very dramatic moment, coughed up a piece of his frostbitten larynx (gasps) and nearly died. He, like, was choking on something, and he, like, heimlicked himself, and it was a piece of the lining of his larynx because he had been breathing so hard. Yeah. That's horrifying. Horrifying. I'm going to do it. (laughs) And then by the time he reached base camp, he was completely snowblind. On June 6th, Mallory and Sandy Irvin set off from the North Pole for their summit attempt, and then Odell climbed up to Camp 5 to act as support. A lot of conversation about this is like, why did Mallory take Irvin instead of Odell? Odell was more experienced, blah, blah, blah. Here's why. Odell was a little bit annoying. (laughs) Irvin was like a tinkerer, and he like fussed. Mallory is completely incompetent with anything that involves like anything except climbing. So Irvin spent most of his time on the mountain, like, fixing everybody's stuff. Mm -hmm. He tinkered with the oxygen tanks to make them more efficient Mm -hmm. and lighter. 
And Mallory was like, I'd rather have him yeah. up on the mountain with me than Odell. And I'd rather have Odell down supporting than yeah. Irvin, who doesn't necessarily know enough to support. Well, you need complementary skills. Yeah. Like Mallory's a great climber. He doesn't need another great climber. Yeah. He needs and Irvin someone was who's... a good climber. He just wasn't like. Sure. But like he doesn't need the other best climber. Yeah. He needs someone who can do the things that he can do. Exactly. Yeah. So, but everything you read will be like, nobody knows why Mallory <laughs> chose to take the small boy instead of the big strong man. It's like, because the small boy has mechanic fingers. Yeah. He has little hands. <laughs> he has little tinkery hands. That was never surprising to me. So. They were at Camp 5 together the morning of June 6th. Odell took a this photo. This is like late in the season now, right? Um, Yeah. Like? The monsoon starts usually early June, like June 1st. Okay, so that, yeah, this is, just, okay, great. No one's making the best decisions. Right. It's mountain fever. Yeah. Odell took a photo of them as they left. And they have, like, their goggles on, and they're at their tents, and they have their oxygen tanks. It's, like, one of the most famous photos in mountaineering history, I assume, because I knew what it was, and I don't know anything about mountaineering except for what I think I know. It was the last photo ever taken of the two of those men. I'll put it on the Instagram. It's such a good photo. So the next day, Mallory and Irvin sent a letter down to Odell from Camp 6. It read, We're awfully sorry to have left things in such a mess. Our Una cooker rolled down the slope at the last moment. Be sure of getting it back to four tomorrow in time to evacuate before dark, as I hope to. In the tent, I must have left a compass. <laughs> For the Lord's sake, rescue it. Um, <laughs> uh, perfect weather for the job. Yours ever, G. Mallory. Along with this letter was a message for John Knoll, who was standing by to film their ascent. It read, Dear Knoll, We'll probably start early tomorrow, 8th, in order to have clear weather. It won't be too early to start looking out for us, either crossing the rock band under the pyramid or going up the skyline at 8 p.m. Yours, G. Mallory. Everyone agrees that he meant to write a.m., but he scattered rain, so he around p.m. We've all been there. Yeah. On June 8th, Odell set out for Camp 6 at 8 a.m. and, like, kind of wandered around looking for cool rocks on his way up. Like you do. Like you do. And at 12.50, he crested a small ridge, and the clouds cleared, and he saw this. The whole summit ridge and final peak of Everest unveiled. I noticed far away on a snow slope leading up to what seemed to me to be the last step, but on from the base of the final period, pyramid, a tiny object moving and approaching the rock step. A second object followed and then climbed to the top of the step. I could see that they were moving expeditiously as if endeavoring to make up for lost time. And then the clouds closed again. Mm -hmm. So he went to Camp 6 where he found pieces of oxygen equipment strewn around the tent, which people think suggests that Irvin had made some last-minute adjustments to the apparatus. And it was, like, also a mess. The compass was there. The uh, Mallory left his flashlight there. Over the next few days, he climbed up and down from 5 to 6 looking for them. And he found everything at Camp 6 as he had left it. And he knew it was over. So he laid two sleeping bags out in the snow in the shape of a T, which was the prearranged signal to his teammates that all hope was lost. And he went back down. Um, and before they left base camp, they had a little meeting to, like, figure out what happened. And everyone but Odell thought, like, they slipped and fell. And Odell said that 
he thought that they had delayed their return from the summit until it was too late and then wandered around in the dark looking for Camp 6 until they succumbed to exposure and exhaustion. Um, He just didn't believe that Mallory could have fallen. Yeah. Um, And they buried them on a moraine near base camp. Um, Somerville and several porters built a 10-foot high— Oh, so they found them. No, no, sorry. The other dead people from the expedition, Uh and they made a little um, memorial. Okay. They built a 10-foot high memorial for all the dead of the three British expeditions, and they carved— their names. The whole country went into mourning, and a memorial service was held for the two men at St. Paul's Cathedral on October 17th. Jeffrey Winthrop Young said, As difficult as it would have been for any mountaineer to turn back with the only difficulty passed, to Mallory, it would have been an impossibility. So the big question is, did they reach the summit? If they did, Obviously, that would supplant Hillary and Tenzing Norway, Norgay as the first people to ever summit Everest. Some things happened after they disappeared that kind of shed a little bit of light. In 1933, on the first expedition to Everest after Mallory's, a climber named Percy Wynn Harris found an ice axe lying on a rock slab 250 yards short of the first step that belonged to one of them. We don't know how it got there, but it was there. And that's Arguably where Odell said he found them, there was like some confusion because he was talking about the steps. People are like, he didn't know that there was a third step or he didn't know there was a second step. There's no way they climbed the second step as fast as he said. That... <sighs> There's a lot of discourse. You mean like that's where Odell saw them? Because mm-hmm. he says like I, they climbed the step mm-hmm. very fast. Yeah. So there's a lot of discourse about which step they could have done yeah. that on. Um. In 1949, Nepal opened its borders so people could now climb from the north side, south, south side. side. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> um, and a year later, the new communist regime in China closed Tibet. So Everest climbers shifted attention to the south side. I write all the answers for myself so I don't <laughs> forget. So... Spring of 1953, a large British team became the third expedition to attempt the summit from Nepal. And in 1954, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay achieved the first, quote-unquote, documented Mm -hmm. ascent of Everest. Nobody climbed Everest from the Tibet side until 1960 when a Chinese team supposedly reached the summit. And they claimed to have climbed the second step by standing on each other's shoulders. Mm -hmm. And no one had ever climbed the second step before. But that story is written in, like, a Chinese propaganda publication. Sure. So most people don't believe that that happened. Mm -hmm. In 1975, another Chinese team climbed the mountain and successfully installed a ladder in the crux of the second step, which allowed them to summit. And that ladder is still there today. Wow. Like, no one changed out the ladder. Yeah. (laughs) So then in 1979, China granted permission to foreigners to approach through Tibet. And that year, a Sino-Japanese expedition went up led by Ryotin Hasegaka. And Ryotin was told by a Chinese member of the team, Wang Hongbao, that four years earlier on the 1975 Chinese expedition, he had gone for a short walk from Camp 6. And within 20 minutes of leaving his tent, he came across the body of a fallen climber, who he said was definitely an old English dead. 
He said the man's clothes had turned to dust and blown away, and he was lying on his side, and that his cheeks had been pecked away by Gorax, which are mountain ravens. Um, Wang died that day. He was avalanched into a crevasse, and Ryoten never learned anything else about it. Um, and then in 1986, an expedition was assembled by Tom Holzell, who had become obsessed with finding Irvin and Mallory and had used the report that Wang gave to narrow down like a quadrangle on the north face below the ridge route that like he thought they might be in, Irvin specifically. Um, he believed that, faced with the realization that they would run out of oxygen before they reached the summit, Irvin had surrendered his gas to Mallory and then descended as Mallory went on to attempt the summit. And as he descended the north face, he slipped, tried to catch himself with his ice axe, lost the axe, and then tumbled a thousand feet to the terrace below. He believes Mallory reached the summit and died of hypothermia in a bivouac or in a fall, maybe all the way down to the Rongbuk Glacier. So at this point, people, like, really didn't in general believe that he reached the summit, but they did like the idea that they had, like, become separated. Mm-hmm. The Holzell team of 86 was forced to turn around due to bad weather at 26,100 feet. They didn't even make it to the quadrangle. And then a man named Jochen Hemleb took over the obsession helm from Tom Holzel and figured out that in the 1975 Chinese expedition, Camp 6 had actually been in a different place from where all other Camp 6s have been established Mm. based on, like, photographs and math, I guess. And from there, he extrapolated a 20-minute radius that he believed could have been where Wang walked and found what everybody assumed was Irvin's body. So in 1998, he arranged an expedition with Eric Simonson, who had climbed Everest in 91 and worked as a Mount Rainier guide, and legendary climber Conrad Anker, among others. On April 30th, they had camps in place and ropes fixed, and they began their search. They said the mountain was as bare as it gets, and it was ideal for the search. At 5.15 a.m. on May 1st, these are the guys who set out. Andy Pollitz, Tap Richards, Jake Norton, Dave Hahn, and Codron Inker. They left Camp 5, followed the regular route up to Camp 6, got there at 10.30, and then set out west to the search zone. At 11.45, just below 27,000 feet on the north face, the team was fanned out. And Conrad Anker caught a glimpse of a piece of blue and yellow fabric flapping in the wind, tucked behind a boulder. He investigated. It turned out to be a piece of tent. But as he was scanning right, he saw a patch of white a few hundred feet away. And he describes it as like it had like a matte look like marble, like it was like absorbing the light instead of reflecting it like Mm. snow. And he went down to investigate and he saw a bare foot, heel up, toes pointed downward. The clothing was definitely not modern. And he thought to himself, this is who we're looking for. This is Sandy Irvin. So he brought all of his cohorts down. The body was face down with his head facing uphill, frozen into the slope. Um, His arms were raised and his fingers were like planted in the scree as if he had tried to stop himself mid-slide and he was not wearing any gloves. Um, The wind had torn most of the clothing away from his back and he was naturally mummified. But around his shoulders and arms, there were remnants of like seven or eight layers of clothing. Mm -hmm. There was a white braided cotton rope t- 
tied to his waist and tangled around his left shoulder. And 10 10 feet from his waist, the rope had snapped and was frayed. Mm-hmm. meaning he'd either been tied to his partner and that he'd taken a long fall and the rope had snapped or w- in the fall or when they were belaying. His right leg was severely broken, and it looked like mm-hmm. in his last moments he had laid his good leg over his broken leg to, like, find some kind of relief mm-hmm. from the pain. They finally got up the nerve to touch the body after just, like, standing for a half an hour trying to figure out what to do. And they agreed to perform as professional an excavation as possible. And they went to take samples of the clothes. And almost immediately, they came across a tag on the shirt that read G. Mallory. (gasps) Oh, my fucking God. Mm -hmm. So they took photos of the body. He broke his leg. He broke his leg. He did have a previous injury that he got in, like, a really stupid way. Like, climbing something like a very small like a wall or something he like broke his ankle Mm. and it bothered him his whole life Mm. and that was the leg that was broken Mm. so they took photos of the body and they ended up being sold by the company that like bankrolled the expedition to um newsweek and then in the uk and australia they were bought by tabloids Mm. Um, And at first, the discovery was, like, a huge deal. And people were like, it's restoring glory to the British Everest climbers. But then people were, like, upset about what happened with the photos. Um, And major mountaineers came and spoke out against it. Hillary said that it was sick that, quote, the expedition members should flog off photos of this heroic figure. Mm -hmm. George Mallory II, his grandson, said, frankly, it makes me bloody angry. So there's a few key pieces of information that you take into consideration when you're asking the question of whether they made the summit. One, his location. It The way he was situated on the mountain, some people say it seems like he was on his way down from the summit as opposed to going back down the North Ridge. Um, they found his goggles in his pocket unbroken, which people say might indicate that they made it to the summit and were on their way down at dusk or in the dark. So mm-hmm. he took his goggles off. Um, Mallory left for the summit with a photo of his wife that he had promised her he would put on the summit for her. When they found him, he did not have that photo with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he also took with him a Kodak vest pocket camera that he borrowed from Somerville before he left for the summit. And he didn't have that camera on him. And one of the big things that people say is if we find that camera, we might find evidence of where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the question of the second step. Nobody can really agree on which step they were at that Odell saw them at. Um, the second step is a very difficult piece of climbing, and people are divided about whether they would even have been able to climb it. Um, so... Those are the things people are looking for. Irvin's body, the camera, and the ability to climb the second step. So Conrad Anker was like, if I can free climb the second step, maybe they would have been able to free climb it. So he went on another expedition. They went back to Mallory's body. They found in his pants pocket a wristwatch. The glass was gone from the face, and the hands had stopped at 140. So they were like, is that when he fell? Was it 1.40 a.m.? Was it 1.40 p.m.? We don't know. They found a bottle of oxygen to the west of where the axe was found in 1933 and were able to identify it as a 
bottle from 1924, which means that they at least reached just below the first step and were on Skyline Ridge, not on the yellow band below, which were the two places that Mallory said they might be. Um, so Conrad went on a trip to free climb step, the second step, and in his book, he did not do it. He couldn't accomplish it. But then in 2010, he filmed a documentary called The Wildest Dream, The Conqueror of Everest, and he did it. Wow. So it was after his book came out. Yeah. But good job, Conrad. Good it's job. amazing. He like almost cries. It's really amazing to watch. Good. So Conrad's theory of what happened is this. They headed up with two bottles of oxygen each, climbed through the yellow band, discarded a bottle between the yellow band and the first step, climbed the first step. This is where Odell saw them. They realized they couldn't make it to the top, and they turned around. Then the snow squall that Odell was met with down when the fog rolled in mm -hmm. came in. The snow filled their tracks, and they had to find a new way down. Mallory was root-finding in the front. They were roped together. Mallory took his goggles off to see better because it was dusk. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that there was no frostbite on his fingers or his face, but he wasn't wearing gloves. So Conrad thinks that they didn't spend the night out on the mountain. He thinks they died on June 8th. He thinks that when Mallory fell, he took off his gloves to grab onto the rocks better. One man pulled the other off the slope. They both plunged down and the rope sawed over a rock edge. So he thinks that the place to look for Irvin was not in the search zone that Hem Hemleb determined, but to the right and west of Mallory. Um, so Mallory falls, the rope tangles around him. The initial impact came on his right side. He had bruising, mm -hmm. um, but he didn't fall all the way from the northeast ridge. He only fell like 300 to 400 feet because the bruising wasn't bad enough. He thinks that based on his position with his hands, he fought till the very end and then crossed his legs to relieve the pain and then died in that position. Interestingly, on the expedition for the documentary where he climbed the second step, he went and looked where he determined Irvin's body should have been, and it wasn't there. Hmm. Neither Sandy Irvin nor the Kodak vest pocket camera have ever been found. Mm -hmm. But many people in the community have faith that on June 8th, 1924, George Mallory and Sandy Irvin did in fact become the first people in history to summit Mount Everest. And in 1995, George Mallory II climbed Everest to complete family business. Aww. He did it. And he did it. He did it. He made it to the top. He made it to the top. Yeah. We love that for him. So I want to shout out my sources. Yes. <clears throat> because I was so excited I forgot That was to. amazing. I'm so glad you liked it. I can't believe they found him. I know. I was not expecting that. It's shocking. Every time, like every telling of that story, they're always like, it's Sandy Irvin. This is exactly. And they set it up so well because yeah. you don't fucking know. Yeah. Nobody How knows what happened. Know? Yeah. And then they're like, they and they show the tag. Oh. oh so good. So. It's two books. The one is The Lost Explorer by Conrad Anker and David Roberts. And the other one is Last Hours on Everest by Graham Hoyland, who is the grandson of a climber who, like, knew all these people mm. and died on the, the mountain, I think. Mm. Not Everest, but it's a very small community. So that's the story of George That's amazing. Mallory. Yeah. I really thought I would go into this thinking that they did it because I want them to have done mm -hmm. it. And I just don't know. Yeah. I won't know till I get up there. Yeah. I think you should go. <laughs> I definitely at least want to go to base camp. Yeah. Through the jungle. Yeah. That'd be nice. Um, 
I think that is one of my life goals. I really, as much as it's my fever dream pipe dream, I don't think I can make it to the top. <laughs> I really don't think I can make it. You can at least go and just I'm see if go you can take a look. what it's like at base camp. I would love to do that. There's a lot of talk in the climbing community about um, climbing Everest mm -hmm. and how it's become commercialized mm -hmm. and it's like disrespectful to the mountain herself mm -hmm. and people are leaving trash all over and oh, like. God. Yeah, and they're like guiding expeditions to Everest are like that's easy, that's hiking, blah blah blah. It's not hiking, sure. Um, I understand that the commercialization is tricky. It's runyon's hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are also efforts being made, like expeditions are signing contracts with the countries that like they have to take down trash. Mm -hmm. And there's expeditions going up specifically to remove oxygen canisters. Yeah. Um, you could do one of those. I would love to do that. <laughs> Maybe I will do that. Um, but yeah, so it got really bad, I think, in the 90s. And now people are kind of making a concerted effort to make it better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of people, like Conrad Anchor at first was like, I'm not climbing fucking Everest. Yeah. But he's doing stuff. Like K2 was harder than Everest, technically. Right. So I'll just do that one. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot going on. There's Those two books are amazing. There's... Climbers love to talk about climbing. Yes. They're very long books because they describe every step yeah. anybody takes. Um, but yeah. Amazing research. Thank you. Amazing, Amazing story. Climb. Amazing climb. What a climb, just like Miley said. It's the climb. <laughs> a wise woman once said. It's the climb. It's the climb. And that's all. Thank you. You're so welcome. For that outside pipe dream. Mm. I'm so excited for you to go mountain climbing You want to come? I'm scared. We're just going to base camp. Okay. Through the fairy forest. Yeah. Okay. I okay. Do that. We don't know. Oh, we'll stay in your lane. Fuck the buck up. This is hard. I have one. Okay, go. 29,035 <laughs> smooches. Aw. Or 29, depends on how you ask. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.